Okay, Netflix and chill or Broadway and dinner? Oh, Netflix and chill. Okay. <laughs> That is Elizabeth Warren painting a mental picture you'll never be able to erase. I'm Justin Robert Young, and this is Politics, Politics, Politics for November 8th, 2019. We got a big old fat, hairy show for you guys today. Number one, Michael Bloomberg may or may not be running for president. So we had to find amongst the regular roster of voices, somebody that would come on on short notice and tell us about Michael Bloomberg. And we found a good one. Many of you might remember her from our fashion of politics segment that we did a few months ago. Joellen Posner joins us as a New Yorker, a business professor, and just a general awesome person. We talk about Bloomberg. It's a great interview. That's coming up. We have a review of the reviews of the brand new book, Warning. That is the anonymous Trump official. Their tale of how Trump's bad. The Washington Post and the New York Times got advanced copies. Hilarity ensues when we read the excerpts. And finally, I this is this is an amazing feat, and, and you all should understand how rare it is that I was on Twitter yesterday and I found somebody who might be more knowledgeable, more obsessed, and even nerdier about these Democratic debate thresholds than your boy is. His name is The Debate Tracker. You can follow him at Tracker Debate. We go over all the November threshold news, the December threshold news, and even project out a little bit as to who is in trouble because of these DNC thresholds. Maybe Andrew Yang in December. Yang gang, you got to listen. But before we do that, let's go ahead and get into the absolute latest on impeachment. Moving to the country, I'm gonna eat a lot of peaches. I'm moving to the country. The biggest development so far today is that key impeachment witnesses in the transcripts that were released both point to Mick Mulvaney the White House Chief of Staff, or acting in that capacity for however long, we do not know. He, according to Fiona Hill and Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, the Director of Eurasian Affairs for the State Department, have said that Mulvaney was the one laying out exactly what the administration wanted in terms of an investigation and an announcement of said investigation. Meanwhile, Mulvaney himself has failed to comply with a House subpoena. That is certainly not uh, any kind of surprise. And yet it is the lack of a subpoena that has disappointed the lawyer of former National Security Advisor John Bolton and former Deputy National Security Advisor Charles Kupperman. They were both uh, uh, expecting subpoenas from the House because they wanted to have it uh, you know, be tested in court as to whether or not they could be compelled 
to testify. It doesn't seem as if those are coming from the Democrats. And so now it seems unlikely that either Bolton or Kupperman will testify, which is a big deal because he would have been a star witness when these hearings go public next week. Looks like it's going to be a big old TV spectacle. And the Republicans are going to make sure that they bring their top guns along, including House Oversight uh, Committee ranking member Jim Jordan. He of Jim Jordan's missing jacket. He is now on the House Intelligence Committee. That is going to be the committee that will be under the bright lights when these hearings begin. House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy said the following, Jim Jordan has been on the front lines in these fights for fairness and truth. His addition will ensure more accountability and transparency in this sham process. Oh, yeah. We are getting everybody lining their troops up. The war begins live on television next week. So the Michael Bloomberg news drops last night, and we need an immediate voice of a New Yorker to qualify exactly what this means. And so we bring in Joellen Posner, the professor of management and entrepreneurship at Santa Clara University and our fashion correspondent here on PX3. Joellen, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, All right. So... Uh, as mystifying as the Bloomberg is running for president rumors kind of are persistently, uh, uh, what was your reaction when you heard that indeed now it is as real as it has ever been and he is planning on filing papers imminently? Um, I, I, I looked at the calendar to make sure I wasn't in a Michael J. Fox movie. <laughs> I mean, cause that, that is kind of the running joke is that he, I think I don't know if there's been a presidential race that he hasn't flirted with running since he has been out of the the, the mayor's office. Right. That's to the best of my recollection, you're correct. Um, And it always seemed a bit far fetched, even when he was not 77. And now it feels even more more far fetched. (laughs) Uh, All right. So from your perspective, uh, as as a New Yorker, how would you describe uh, uh, Mayor Bloomberg and his tenure in City Hall? So I, in full disclosure, I left New York soon after Mayor Bloomberg took over. I, uh, in fact, voted not for Bloomberg, but for his opponent, Mark Green, the then public advocate in 2001, which was my last uh, election in New York. Uh-huh. And I couldn't bring myself to pull the lever for Bloomberg because I was just sick of Republicans running the city at that point. And uh, even though I knew he was not a real Republican, you know, that was kind of a joke. Um, I just I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to do it. But in my defense, I had this elaborate voting strategy worked out where (laughs) I waited until the polls were about to close before I got online uh, because I knew by that point the decision would have already essentially been made and my vote was was marginal and wasn't going to count, which is not really how democracy works, but it made sense to me at the time. <laughs> so 
So Bloomberg, um, I think, was a really good mayor. I think, you know, despite expectations of what a billionaire businessman might be able to accomplish uh, as a as a legit politician, you know, the qualifier there, um, he he did he did a lot for the city. He got us out of uh, the kind of Giuliani mentality and the, the the kind of bummer of a of a, an end of Giuliani's tenure that that had taken over the city, and obviously this, he took over in 2002. There was a lot of work to be done um, in terms of infrastructure and getting the city back together and, and on the same page. And I think he did a really good job. The overwhelming reaction or my overwhelming uh, memory of Bloomberg as mayor was that he rode the subway. And he uh, sat in a cubicle like everybody else. So one of the things that Bloomberg is magical at is making you forget that he is a gajillionaire. Um, <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't put on airs. He's a he's a reasonably modest person. He doesn't brag about himself. Uh, he's I mean I'm sure in, in private he has his own thoughts, but but he's his public persona is not a man of the people, but somebody who gets what it's like to be a person who started with not millions of dollars in the bank account, which is uh, more than we can say for others. Certainly so. And there is the fact that he has a gigantic network with his name on it, which is another unique element of him and and a tribute to his ability to play the everyman. Uh, But since he was not a real Republican in that mayoral's race, he has now become an actual Democrat. He spoke at the 2016 Democratic National Convention. He flirted through the summer about getting into this race, but from your perspective, Joellen, how excited is this primary for a second billionaire to enter? Okay. I happened to be on Facebook earlier this morning and uh, interacting with my first cousin once removed, Elliot, who's 79, and he is very excited. Oh, okay. Uh, so I think that there are plenty of people who are going to be very excited, but I don't know that anybody who's already in the primary race is going to be excited. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think very many people, uh, you know, south of my, my first cousin once removed uh, demographic are going to be that excited. This man, if he, if he were to win the nomination and take office in 2021, would turn 79 one month after the inauguration. Oh, wow. So wait, that is, seems, is, is he, so he is older than Bernie, huh? So he would be the oldest candidate I, in the race. I believe so. Yeah, he was born in February of 1942. What if he's actually he's just not doing... Even, he's not even a baby boomer. He's too old to be a baby boomer. <laughs> uh, uh, no, yeah, right? He's like greatest generation. <laughs> He's greatest generation. <laughs> uh, uh, do, do you think that the money thing plays a factor? Because th- there's been a bit of a sturm and drung around uh, Tom Steyer, despite the fact that I don't really think that he's much of a threat, but people seem upset about the fact that he spent so much money on ads and he has uh, made his way into the debates because of it. Uh, uh, do you think Bloomberg's going to face some of that same backlash? I mean, it's definitely going to be a talking point for Warren and, and Sanders, right? That the uh, building up your base with small donations is a badge of honor right now among the Democrats, and I think uh, Bloomberg's not unlikely to take donations at all. I mean, at least that's what he's said in the past. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that that could be a, a point of uh, of real differentiation and not a good way for him.
Uh, for the record, Michael Bloomberg is three months younger than Bernie Sanders. So Bernie Sanders would still hold the title as the oldest candidate in the race. It's kind of splitting hairs at that point, right? It is. It is. It is. But just just, just for, for accuracy's sake. Yeah, for, for accuracy's sake. We, we, we strive for nothing but accuracy on this podcast. So that's the only thing that we have. Uh, all right. I got it. Now, the other the other side of this is that Michael Bloomberg has been a gigantic advocate for certain causes, among them climate change and gun control. We've seen now two candidates come and go, uh, Swalwell, the representative from California, and Beto O'Rourke passed the El Paso shooting. I, I, I you know, I don't know. Uh, they, have, they have come and gone, right? Both of them are now out of the race uh, after they made gun control the centerpiece of their campaign. I don't know what, Michael Bloomberg's main pitch is going to be from your sense of him as a mayor. Is there anything that I'm missing that just he intrinsically comes with? Not that I can see. Um, he, you're right. So his two main issues are, are gun control and, 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 and the environment. And those are great, but they're, but he's not particularly progressive on either one of them, right? He's not, uh, he's, he's still a moderate. Um, he always has been. And, and I think he's not going to inject incite excitement um, because of that into his campaign, and if there is a campaign. Yeah, I don't see any issues where he's um, going to be significantly different from any of the other moderates who have been or, or, or currently are still in the race. And if I'm looking between Amy Klobuchar and Michael Bloomberg, I'm going to pick Amy every time. Yeah, and that's the weirdest thing about it is that it seems like we've got a pretty nice Pantone spread of ideas in the Democratic primary right now. <laughs> like there's there's you know there's some moderates, there's some some very aggressive progressives. Like there there seems to be a, a fairly healthy buffet. I don't quite know why we need a tray of Bloomberg at the last minute. I agree, and the fact that he thinks that he's you know his justification for getting into the race or or what's been circling is that he's not really impressed with the field as it stands. And I think that's really not that we haven't had enough time with them to really see who's going to shine and, and whose ideas are going to take hold. But there's nothing in Bloomberg's past that makes me feel like he's the one that's going to stand head and shoulders above the rest. The one thing that I can think that might be a benefit of, of his entry is that maybe he'll split the old white man vote. You know, so if it's if it's between him and, and Biden, yeah, that they, he could he could grab half of Biden's votes or maybe even more. And if it's between him and Bernie, he could probably get, you know, some some Bernie votes. Um, he might be able to be the kingmaker for Elizabeth Warren or Amy Klobuchar. You know, maybe uh, when we see all of these old white men standing and shouting to varying degrees uh, at us, we say, oh, actually, that's not at all what we want. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You can sit down now. And the contrast makes it uh, easier for somebody who's younger or has better ideas uh, or more progressive ideas to shine. All right. Last question. In 2008, obviously seven years after 9-11, Rudy Giuliani becomes America's mayor in the intervening time. He is a commercially packaged saint. He runs for president in 2008. Can't buy a vote. We just had Bill de Blasio, the current mayor of New York, uh, get in and out of this race because he could generate zero excitement. So I ask you, Joellen, as somebody 
who obviously has ties to the city of New York, but has lived away from it for a significant period of time. How much do people that don't live in the five boroughs give a rat's ass about the mayor of New York? Uh, I think zero much. Yeah. Um, I think they don't. <laughs> but I, but I also think that I, of those three, Bloomberg is, is clearly the most attractive to the average Joe, um, particularly in the age of Trump. So, like, let's just think about Michael Bloomberg this way. And, and I, now I'm going to sound like his apologist and I don't mean to. Okay. Um, but he is what Trump would like people to think Trump is, right? He's an actual self-made billionaire. He actually has billions of dollars. He actually gives them to charity. He uh, actually has won elections. He actually behaves as if he understands what people are thinking on the street. He actually rides the subway. He probably doesn't eat pizza with a fork and knife. He's an actual <laughs> fiscal conservative. He's an actually good decision maker. He doesn't have any major scandals, right? So if you're the kind of person that says, oh, Trump was great because he's all of these things that Trump is pretending to be, you might say, oh, look at this guy. He, in fact, looks more like that archetype than I anticipated, right? Or that, or then this false, uh, this false archetype is, has proven to be. Sure. That's not to say that I think Trump voters would flock to Bloomberg, not by a long shot. But if you're thinking, who could be, who's the anti-Trump, the bizarro Trump that could actually be Trump? It might be Bloomberg. Yeah. I mean, the question is how he gets there. To, to a head-to-head match. I don't, I don't, <laughs> because yeah, I, think I don't think he can. That's, that's the tricky thing is if it looked bad in the summer when you didn't want to get in, then how is it going to look any better now that we've had a couple, you know, we've had multiple televised debates for people to cement their opinions a little bit and, and to start fighting on yeah. some of the actual issues. That's that, that, that's the bizarre thing to me. Although I'm still, I, I still, partly believe that this is not real because this has been again the, the the constant refrain of like no but this time this time he's definitely getting in he really wants to get in oh he's he's absolutely oh no he's not and he's already done it once this cycle what's a second time all right uh, yeah uh, i'm with you uh joellen thank you so much for joining us last minute it uh, uh having your perspective on this is greatly appreciated thanks so much for having me it's always fun Politics. A reminder, friends, that you can always join our Patreon at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. When you're at the $3 level, that means you get two bonus podcasts a week. One on Monday, one on Thursday. Never be without this show. It'll appear in a custom RSS feed. Plug it into the pod catcher of your choice. Like that, that is so underrated. Nobody likes to go to a special place to listen to a special thing. No one likes to go to a web page. No one likes to enter in their passwords. Boom. One time in your podcatcher, set it and forget it. Next thing you know, it just shows up like you weren't even trying. Also, we got our free political newsletter, freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Five days a week, five stories a day, all written by me, mostly gifts. Sometimes a little bit of analysis as well. And with that, oh, what is that? What are those magical strains? Looks like 
There's a message afoot. Politics! We've been sent to issue all you people here a warning. I'm not at liberty to say the details of our most peculiar warning. Yeah. Suffice to say, all you people here are in grave danger. Honestly, I'm not sure what is said in the new book, Warning, by Anonymous, an anonymous senior Trump official that is not said in the Tenacious D song, Warning. The reviews are out, specifically with the New York Times and the Washington Post, so I pulled some excerpts. Let's start with the Post, because the Post was a little kinder to the book. The Post says, uh, the book contains a handful of startling assertions that are not backed up with evidence. (laughs) Again, this is the kind review. Such a claim that if a majority of the cabinet were prepared to remove Trump from office under the 25th Amendment, Vice President Pence would have been supportive. Now, that will certainly do no, uh, no, no favors to the idea that this anonymous author, who initially in 2018 wrote a New York Times editorial, is either from the Pence orbit or is Pence himself. Another excerpt. After the 2018 killing of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi by Saudi agents, the author writes, Trump vented to advisors and said he would be foolish to stand up to Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Quote, do you know how stupid it would be to pick this fight, Trump said, according to the book? Oil would go up $150 a barrel. Jesus, how effing stupid would I be? (laughs) I mean, here's the weird thing. So you go through this entire process. You're writing your story anonymously. You don't come forward. You don't put your name on it. Although apparently the author, the anonymous author does at some point early in the book say, I know people might say this is cowardice and that I won't put my name on this, but I might. (laughs) I mean, what a hold me back move, right? I mean, that puts you in line with everybody else that works in the White House that hates their job. Congratulations. What a bold stance you've taken. (laughs) <laughs> but also, when it comes to the, the Saudi Arabia thing, that's effectively what Trump said out loud. Trump said out loud pretty much that exact thing. Except he added, also, we like selling arms to them. And if we don't sell weapons to them, then the Russians will. So either we're turning down money or we're taking the money and we're taking the money. I'm the take the money president. So that's the nice review. What I want to read here is the New York Times review. Because remember, it was the New York Times that initially ran that anonymous column. And here's a little media uh, background for folks. 
especially at a gigantic paper like the New York Times, sections are very segmented. In fact, the editorial department at most major newspapers are by design fundamentally separated from all newsroom activities. They are just a group of people that independently make opinions for the paper that they don't interact with. This comes with great consternation from everybody that's actually trying to make the content that people read because every once in a while, the you know loose autonomous board will just make a proclamation from on high that most people in the newsroom don't agree with and they have to deal with the consequences. The reporters do especially if they're pissing off somebody in in power that now is going to make the reporter's job harder. So these are not things that are taken to a vote with the newsroom. It's not like everybody got together in the the, the bullpen there and the editor-in-chief said, hey, guys, we got this anonymous column from somebody who says they're in the Trump administration. We actually confirmed that they are there. Uh, who wants us to run it? Show of hands. Can we get some hands? Huh? Yeah, no. Paula in the back, is that a yes or a no? Okay, that's a yes. Everybody, there's cake in the break room. I'll see you later. It's not like that. The The columns folk just run it, and that's that. So you might assume that there are people at the New York Times that are annoyed by the fact that they ran that column. And I would also further assume that one of those people reviewed the book because here is what they write about it. It's hard to look like a heroic truth teller by comparison, but Anonymous tries very hard presenting anonymity as not just convenient, but an ultimately selfless act designed to force everyone to pay more attention to what this book says by deflecting attention away from the person who's saying it. Removing my identity from the equation deprives him of an opportunity to cause a distraction, Anonymous writes, referring to Mr. Trump's compulsion to attack his critics. What will he do when there's no person to attack, only an idea? (laughs) So he's V for Vendetta now, right? He's Guy Fox. Is that what we're doing? Okay, cool. Here's another excerpt from the New York Times Review. A warning, Anonymous says, is intended for broad audiences. Although to judge from the parade of bland, methodical arguments, Anonymous loves to qualify criticisms with a lawyerly in fairness, The ideal reader would seem to be an undecided voter who has lived in a cave for the past three years and is irresistibly moved by quotations from Teddy Roosevelt and solemn invocations of Cicero. (laughs) Man, you know, sometimes, sometimes there is just nothing like a super catty New York Times book review. And our final, our final quote, senior officials contemplating a replay of the Nixon administration's so-called Saturday Night Massacre by resigning en masse, the idea of doing anything so bold was floated within the first two years of the Trump administration and then abandoned. Toward the end of the book, an earlier quotation of Mr. Trump kept coming back to me unbidden, quote, 
These are just words. A bunch of words. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, how lame of a book do you have to write? How lame of a book do you have to write to have a New York Times book review unironically fan quote Donald Trump? Amazing. Just an achievement. Cheers to you, Anonymous. Also, I'm going to put this out there. Uh, Would you bet your life, would you bet your life that this book was not written by an AI comprised totally of Bill Crystal tweets? Doctors in the studio, Dr. Bird, he seems to think so. Like, I mean, come on, come on, really. There's no way that you can't find out who this dude is, especially if he still works at the White House. Just look for all the, who writes emails with really sweaty metaphors? You all know it. Everybody in the office, you work in an office, you know it. You know it. I know you do. You know the guy who overwrites his emails. I know it because I'm that guy. That's why I can't work in an office anymore. Because if I write my anonymous book, everyone would know by my turgid prose. Politics! Welcome to the show, The Debate Tracker. You can follow him at Tracker Debate on Twitter, and quite possibly, dear listeners to this show, somebody more obsessed with qualifying polls and thresholds than I am. Uh, Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, All right. It's uh, great to be here. (laughs) uh, uh, Let's go ahead and and start things off. The state of play right now. We are going to have these November debates on the 20th, but next week is the end of the qualifying window, right? Uh, yeah, on uh, November 13th. Uh, and as of now, who is qualified for this November 20th debate? Right now, there's uh, 10 candidates. Uh, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Kamala Harris, Tom Steyer, Andrew Yang, Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, and Tulsi Gabbard. Now, all right, let's start here, because I have I have larger kind of like philosophical questions about these thresholds, but... First things first, we have to talk about Tulsi Gabbard, who seemed to be dead in the water. And and just to give people a sense, Julian Castro, who has qualified for every other debate, is almost certain not to make this one. He has zero qualifying polls right now. It seemed to be a fate shared by Tulsi Gabbard until Hillary Clinton mentions her name in anger. And uh, uh, lo and behold, she has four qualifying polls. She's going to be on stage, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it looked like that was going to be the case before the Hillary Clinton comments. Tulsi Gabbard had never polled above 2% in a qualifying poll. <laughs> and for November, she needed four polls at 3%. And then immediately after the comments, uh, since then, up until she got her fourth poll um, two days ago, uh, she got all four polls after those comments between then and today. It so is- it does look like... Because of Hillary Clinton's comments, Tulsi Gabbard qualifies for the November debate and might even qualify for the December debate. <laughs> it just never ceases to amaze me. Hillary Clinton is the greatest star maker in American politics, and she's still working her magic even now on this primaries. It's so fascinating. Uh, all right. So uh, let, let's go ahead and talk about uh, the, these thresholds in general. Because these are uh, a a bit controversial. You've heard almost every candidate 
uh, complain about how the thresholds went. Uh, do you feel like, as somebody who has watched this, that there is anything in the process of qualification that either, now that we've seen it happen a few times, seems a bit too complicated or maybe they're letting too many people in? Uh, well, yeah, it's a complicated question because it, it straddles the line of um, are you letting too many candidates in or are you being unfair to, you know, arbitrarily excluding certain candidates? At a certain point, you have to make a cutoff. Like for the June and July debate, there were um, 20 candidates split over two nights. Yeah. And some people are saying, you know, 10 candidates in November, that's even too many. But then other people are, you know, saying that some people are being excluded just because of polling, which given the margin of error and how these polls work, the difference between three and 4%, sometimes it can literally be the difference between one respondent picking <laughs> yeah. someone or not. And, you know, it's a difficult job to pick qualification requirements that um, are fair. But, um, you know, with, with those requirements, you just got to, you know, take them and see what, uh, what the on uh, on all the polls that are coming out. So let's let's go through some of the the nitty gritty here. Because my biggest complaint is not necessarily that they're setting these percentage thresholds. Uh, I really didn't even have a problem with the unique donor thresholds because it feels like most of the candidates at this stage are being fairly easily that they're easily able to hit them. And maybe the folks that couldn't clear them before, like the Kirsten Gillibrands and the Eric Swalwells of the world, maybe that that was just a a sign that they were running a fundamentally flawed campaign and they should step away. However, the thing that does puzzle me is how few approved polls they have, because because it feels like especially for some of them over the last few months that we were getting like a total of 12 or 13 approved polls uh, uh, total. Right. I guess for this one, there's been 23 approved polls up till now. Do you think that's enough? Uh, well, I, let me see. Up until now, I have the spreadsheet in front of me. I think it's been yeah, about 30 polls as of um, November 6th, so between the end of the... Okay. Uh, right after the September debate and now. And you know, there is the idea that, you know, if you include all polls, it gives candidates a better chance to, to hit the numbers. But then again, it is 30 polls, and you only need four out of the 30. So, again, I think it's more of a philosophical question of you know should we expect candidates to be able to hit their polls in four out of 30 or should we expand it to 50 and i'm not really sure what what the correct answer is on yeah. that yeah you know I, I guess in 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 my mind i i just kind of feel like if if there are quality polls that are out there then why are they not approved it just seems arbitrary to me that some of them that uh, some of them are there on the sacred scrolls and others aren't, but obviously it's the DNC that gets to do what they want. Uh, yeah, I'll say that one one thing that doesn't make a ton of sense is that there is the idea that there are some pollsters like CBS, um, YouGov, yeah, that use one pollster to complete that uh, YouGov, but Economist, which uses YouGov, does not count, and at the same time, Boston Globe, which uses Suffolk to conduct New Hampshire polls, but USA Today that uses Suffolk counts for Iowa polls while Boston Globe doesn't. Yeah. That, and that, that yeah. does seem a little arbitrary compared to, 
you know, there are reasons why you shouldn't use Emerson poles or, or Harris X poles yeah. or um, the Rasmussen poles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I get it if it, it is a, a pollster of dubious repute, right? Uh, I mean, no polls mm-hmm. are perfect, but some can be critiqued by methodology a little clearer. But like you said, for some that are like, all right, obviously these are legit, then why why not? I don't know. Uh, uh, let, let's focus a little bit. One more question on the November debate, and then we're going to move to December. It, it seems unlikely that anybody else is going to qualify here, right? Yeah, Castro, he's he's pulling at an average of, in the last 10 qualifying polls, um, I think 0.6%. And he has, uh, I don't even know when the last time he's pulled above 2% was. It was a really long time ago, and he needs four of those in the next uh, few days. So it's yeah. not going to happen. Now, it would be highly unlikely that for whatever reason, uh, Castro would spike Unless, of course, Hillary Clinton were to speak his name in anger. Uh, and, and for the record, uh, Beto O'Rourke is now out of the race, obviously, but had qualified for two polls. So he would theoretically have had a slightly better shot than Castro to qualify for this one. Uh, mm-hmm. no. Yeah, no, Beto O'Rourke had a, had a decent chance to qualify, but Julian Castro pretty much has as close to 0% chance as you can get at this point. Now, let me ask you about this December debate, because I was a little harsh on Tom Perez and the DNC to to kind of break the cadence that they had had on these debate thresholds. Each debate had two or sorry, each threshold had two debates. So if you were unable to qualify for one, there was another uh, amount of time that you were able to qualify for the next one. This is the first back to back series of debates that we're going to get two new sets of thresholds. So November gets one, and December gets an even harder threshold that at least as of now seems to have significantly willowed the, uh, winnowed the field. Uh, what, is your, what is your take on raising the threshold this late in the game? Uh, well, I think the DNC saw the uh, reaction to when September going into October went from 10 candidates to 12 candidates, and that's because they had the same qualification thresholds, but they extended the uh, polling and donor deadline. And I think they saw that, you know, as we do get closer to the Iowa caucus, um, the state should be shrinking and not growing. And if they had kept the same November rules for December, there's a greater chance that, you know, that O'Rourke stays in and probably gets his four polls. Uh, Castro maybe has a chance to get higher. Um, and we end up getting a bigger December stage than November. I think it, it generally sits with the philosophy that, you know, as you uh, progress towards Iowa, the stage should be shrinking and that only the candidates that, you know, have a reasonable shot of winning the nomination should be included on the debate stage. All right. So let, let's take a look at this December threshold. Uh, this means that you need to get at least 4% support from four different polls. Uh, uh, that will run from uh, October 16th to November, or sorry, to December 12th. That's when that window closes. Who has currently qualified for that, the the December or December debate? So right now, uh, only six candidates have qualified. Um, Biden, Warren, Sanders, Buttigieg, Harris, and just the other day, uh, Amy Klobuchar became the sixth candidate to qualify. And that leaves out 
people like uh, Tom Steyer, obviously Tulsi Gabbard, and to the great consternation of the Yang gang, Andrew Yang, who was only one qualifying poll deep for that threshold. That, to me, would be the big story, right? If, if, if this threshold kept out a candidate like Andrew Yang that has kind of been on the ascendancy in terms of fundraising and polling in general? Uh, well, he's not qualified yet, but there is still, uh, you know, over a month, and there's a good chance that he, Steyer, and Gabbard, one of, if not all of them, can still qualify for December. Sure, So yeah. they're not done yet, and there's no, still no, plenty no. of polls, but uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, that that I guess to me, that would be the only thing looking forward that I would say like, all right, that 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 might draw some criticism if, you know, somebody that seems to be doing all the right things is now denied a spot on the stage. But you're right. There, there's a lot of time between now and December 12th uh, over a month. So uh, yep. there, there's and a I lot that can happen. The, the answer to that is also, you know, if, if he doesn't get on it, it's because he doesn't have the polls and he's pulling at an average of right now in the last 10 polls, 3%. And, you know, someone could say that, well, look at that. We need to look at the people that are, you know, actually polling above 3% who have a reasonable shot at the nomination. And someone arguing in favor of the DNC rules could say, you know, no one below that threshold is realistically going to win the Iowa caucus, win the nomination. So there's not a ton of point in including that. That's not necessarily how I feel on the situation, but I do (laughs) see that argument. Yeah, I mean, so do I. But also, it just seems... Like, for us, we're in this kind of dual reality, right, where now we're paying so much more attention to politics than we ever have earlier in this process than we ever have. I can't remember Mm -hmm. anybody giving a rat's ass about polling in June, right? But this time, it seemed like there were gigantic media structures built for it uh, to serve a waiting audience to get that kind of information. So the, the <laughs> idea that somebody hasn't peaked or hasn't shown tremendous uh, 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 competitive polling nature in Iowa three months before the uh, uh, th- three months before the actual caucus doesn't seem crazy to me. But I guess now there's just a higher threshold because there's so much more attached to it in terms of public attention. Right. Yep, and there's there's so many candidates, so they need to put in these these thresholds to try to winnow it down before before um, the first votes. I guess the uh, DNC feels that they don't want that many candidates. And this is probably something because you your your Twitter, which again I, I encourage everybody to follow immediately. That is Tracker Debate on Twitter, and uh, you have a Patreon as well, right? Uh, yes. Uh, and where can people find that? Um, that is linked to my Twitter account. Oh, perfect. So go to go to at Tracker Debate, follow him there, and then find uh, uh, uh find the Patreon. But th- this this might be a little bit out of your 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 very fact focused purview. But I guess I do have a larger philosophical question of: Do you need to be chasing these people off the debate stage? Uh, uh th- th- normally the election, the the primary system <laughs> is designed to weed people out. How many more people do you need to pre weed out before? voters start paying attention to them? Um, I, I'd say probably, you know, the, this last threshold of four polls at 4%, maybe one additional threshold I think they're going to add going into January of maybe four polls at 5%. Yeah. At that point, it probably just makes sense to not, you know, include any more things that could pe- potentially winnow the field because it is going to be around seven candidates or so. 
And, you know, at that point, probably just let the states start to decide for themselves which candidates they want to continue, including generally, um, I think the Republican debates did this in 2016. They had, you know, polling thresholds. Plus, if you finished in the top three or five of uh, Iowa or New Hampshire, you can proceed to the future debates. So at a certain point, it does make sense to, you know, not use DNC thresholds to make the decisions of the voters. It does seem that the thresholds have been effective for candidates that serious candidates that are that are on the outside looking in. There have been decisions made uh, to to uh, discontinue campaigns. We saw it with Swalwell and we just saw it with Beto. Right. I mean, although he had a shot to do it, it was by no means a guarantee. And that uh, at least on some level had to factor into his decision to to step down. No. Uh, yeah, no, I think definitely not making the debates is part of that decision. And I think you also saw that with uh, Jay Inslee and yeah. Pearson Gillibrand. I think they had mentioned that not making the future debates was definitely going to be part of their decision to drop out. And Julian Castro has even said before that not making the November debate would be the end of his campaign. It seems like he's kind of moved on to trying for December, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you know, he drops out this month, next month, along with you know, possibly Cory Booker, who's also going to be in big trouble um, for possibly not making the December debate. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just looking uh, now. So, yeah, Cory Booker, again, a mainstay on these debate stages, uh, not only has not passed the donor threshold for December, but also is sitting at a goose egg of zero qualifying polls. Yeah, and if I'm – I think I'm correct. I don't think he's polled above 3% since um, since late August. And he needs, again, four of those before uh, December 12th. So I don't think anyone's going to be, um, you know, attacking him and trying to boost his poll significantly uh, too much before then. So he probably needs a really good November debate or it's probably, you know, going to be the end of his campaign. And he's already shown kind of a willingness to, you know, suspend his campaign if it looks like it's not going anywhere, given the... Um, the fundraising ultimatum oh, he made yeah, yeah. Uh, the other month. Yeah, those are always so weird. They're like, if you don't give me money, I'll stop. Like, it's just, it's, it's a weird. I mean, I guess. Look, it's, it, it, it's direct marketing. That's what you know gets people going. Uh, is there anything that that we are are missing? Is there any fascinating element of these thresholds or candidates that may or may not make them that we have not talked about that is just on your radar as somebody who's watching this very closely? Um, I think one thing I'm really interested in is how Tom Steyer has been, you know, running these ads to try to target specifically $1 donations. Just the idea of in general that I'm a billionaire, but give me $1 so I can hit these, you know, 200 K <laughs> unique donor thresholds. Um, it's one of those things that apparently Michael Bloomberg, if he decides to run is not going to be doing. I think I read something that he's not going to be accepting or uh, seeking contributions, which means he's not going to be able to hit the donor threshold and he's not going to be in the debates. Well, I mean, add that to the list of puzzling things about Michael Bloomberg running for president in this Democratic primary. But uh, yeah, no, you are you are 100 percent right. And I mean, it, it, what was there anything as silly that came from these thresholds as Kirsten Gillibrand giving away like T-shirts for a dollar <laughs> like that? That has to be the craziest outgrowth of these, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, I guess, an unintended you know, side effect of the donor threshold that candidates have to actually be you know, losing money 
to hit these thresholds. Um, I think, you know, on, on Facebook and Google, um, the, the cost of targeting each specific unique donor was somewhere between like 40 and $80. So they were spending, you know, close to a hundred dollars to make $1 so that they can hit these thresholds. So they, <laughs> they can make the debate, then increase their fundraising so they can spend more money to make the next unique donor thresholds. It just seemed like that was just so upside down. It was so crazy, especially considering that uh, on uh, part of the platforms of all these candidates is complaining about Facebook, who they're immediately emptying their entire bank account for so they can micro-target these very specific people that would be most likely to give them a dollar. And that's probably who uh, is most happy about you know the Fire campaign spending. Um, I think in the third quarter, it was close to $50 million on <gasps> Facebook and Twitter and Google advertisements uh, because he he needed to to do that to hit the you know unique donor count before the debates. But you know we'll see if he even makes the uh, December debate. Um, he's in the November debate, but yeah. you know he he's shown that he's willing to spend whatever it takes to to hit those thresholds. And there's a pretty good chance he makes the December debate. I mean, he has done fairly well in terms of his polling. Uh, uh, Steyer, at this point for the November debate, has 11 qualifying polls. That is more than Amy Klobuchar, a sitting senator, Cory Booker, a senator, and Tulsi Gabbard, a you know member of the House of Representatives. So he's doing something right in terms of his polling. His name awareness is is fairly high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've seen you know a lot of controversy on this when I check my mentions on Twitter, just people you know, complaining about Tom Steyer. And it's, it's hard to think, you know, what, what the DNC could have done to specifically you know, prevent something like this from happening because he's, you know, he's running his campaign within the confines of the, the debate qualification rules. And, you know, he, he hit the polls, he hit the unique donor count. So it's hard to say what, what more the DNC could have done if they were trying to prevent something like this from happening. Well, and aside from that, anybody who gets mad that that he's spending all of his money right now, you got to remember that he's been running this like Donald Trump is a fraud and a failure impeach Trump ads for years, right? Like he was running them from from before the midterms. Like the reason why he has a high name value is because people have been seeing his ad for years at this point, not just over the last few days. Uh, And I think that's part of it is, you know, he was thinking about running uh, before and then didn't and then wound up getting in later. So I don't know. Uh, uh, I, I, I get people mm-hmm. complaining about the money thing, but I think there is a fuller picture here. And, and and even if it's just, hey, he's been spending his money for a lot longer than people realize. Yep. All right. Uh, uh, again, that is at Tracker Debate. Follow this man immediately because I know I will. Uh, it, it is it is awesome to see somebody updating this kind of stuff in real time because I know I feel that there's just been a, a paucity of it considering, in my opinion, it is the absolute gateway to any kind of party relevance <laughs> at, at a very early phase. So thank you for, for uh, putting the time and effort. Uh, th- and also thank you for joining the show. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I couldn't do you know any of the the tracking or research without you know Zach, Zach Montalero's um, polling spreadsheet and the 538 latest polling list, which I use every time I'm trying to do any research on this. Um, and it really helps inform and paint a better picture of what the debate qualifications look like. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for having me. 
Politics. And that wraps it up for us today. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier, Adam, Jonathan, D-Laser, Andy, Ball, Mike, and Brad. Reminder that you can join the ranks of those that keep independent political analysis and, dare I say, a watered-down homeopathic version of journalism alive at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Free political newsletter at FreePoliticalNewsletter.com. You can always write to me. The young American at gmail.com. Again, the young American at gmail.com. Have a great weekend, everybody. I will see you all next week. And a reminder some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics. But this, friends, right here, right now, is the only one that without hesitation, access, or discretion talks about all. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>